welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Sue Carter. She's a former director of the Kinsey Institute, and she has published groundbreaking research into the effects of vasopressin and oxytocin on early social experience. Welcome. Hi, Sue, and welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you on, and we'll go a little bit of history here. So I'm going to introduce her briefly, and she is a world-renowned scientist, and I say that in the biggest terms because she's one of the top people in the world on this hormone called oxytocin. And she was the director of the Kinsey Institute for a long time. She's written, how many papers have you written, do you think, Sue? 400, 500. <laughs> Just four or 500. So you lose count after the first couple hundred, right? And so um, I used to say, well, she's married to Steve Portis, but I now say Steve Portis is married to her. And Steve Portis popularized the polyvagal theory. And I got, had the pleasure of meeting her through her husband, Dr. Porges, and then she started being involved in the conversations and she's, she actually listens, which I don't listen very well. And so then she started to talk. And so we quickly became, we have a round table discussion twice a month now on Wednesdays where a group of scientists gets together and just discusses chronic disease, but we go into the basic science research. So Sue has been one of those people who's just dug really deeply into stuff. We've, we've learned a lot about her. What we want to focus on today is, the, there's many topics we could talk about, but we really want to focus on social connection in this molecule called oxytocin. In a medical school, oxytocin was the lactation drug, sort of the bonding drug, but that's all we really thought it was all about. And Sue has given us a tremendous perspective on how this molecule is so essential for our so essential for our existence and, and ongoing survival. So Sue, welcome. Excited to have you here today. Yes, thank you, David. It's a pleasure. So always good to see you. So I just want to start a little bit about your background. You've been in you were director of the Kinsey Institute. What is the Kinsey Institute exactly? It's a research institute at Indiana University in Bloomington started by Alfred Kinsey, who did what was known as the Kinsey Report, became known as that. It was a very large, first of its kind, survey of human sexuality. Okay. Um, Mission of the Institute broadened after that to include a lot of research on everything from deep physiology to epidemiology. But Kinsey himself was the, the inspiration for a lot of what has gone on there in the last 70 plus years. And you were director of that for, are you for still director five, of No, for five years. I'd, that was my term. It's a, I'll be honest, it's a hard job to run the Kinsey Institute. Well, just being in charge of people in general is difficult. Yes, and around a topic Anything where the word sex comes into the conversation has a lot of uh, vulnerability and complexity. And so it was, it was fun, but it was also very challenging. What I'd like to start out with today is the 
I'm going to give a very rookie um, evaluation of the human existence, which comes from this book, Sapiens, is that I'm looking at a chart that Sue put together in a paper on oxytocin, and she truly is one of the world's leading scientists on oxytocin. And you really haven't give it, given us a hint of what other things you are an expert on, which I'm assuming there's a few other things too. So I don't, I don't want to put you in a box either. But she points out that the Big Bang started 14 billion years ago and that we started with you know, bacteria without any nucleus, then it, went to, then it went to a nucleus. And then eventually mammals came up about, what, 150 million years ago, Sue? Roughly 100 to 150 million. Yeah. Right, and that's a long time, but not in comparison to 14 billion years ago. And that's when oxytocin showed up. And from what I have read that, and please correct me, Sue, I know you will, is that the human brain requires about 25% of its metabolic energy to run the brain. And that means the fuel consumption it takes to run the nervous system in mammals, I'm sorry, in humans, which other mammals is about three to 4%. So from a food competitive standpoint, we were at a disadvantage until we learned how to cooperate, which started with language between 70 to 100,000 years ago. And as we developed language, we started to cooperate. And as we began to cooperate, we we're able to then be have a competitive advantage. And then what's disturbing about this book, Sapiens, we proceeded to literally destroy about 90% of all life on this planet, starting with the big animals. We just we're able to cooperate, strategize. And of course, last 200 years, we're now destroying the planet with our language and technology. But that's a different topic. So somewhere around 150 million years ago, which is a long time before 100,000 years ago, oxytocin showed up. Can you talk to us about the evolution of oxytocin a little bit, Sue? I'd love to, David, because I think Oxytocin was truly an unappreciated molecule for most of its known existence. Of course, it existed for a hundred plus million years, but we only learned about it about um, the turn of the 20th century, about 1906. It was actually one of the first molecules to be discovered, synthesized, but it had been there behind the scenes doing far more than helping with childbirth or lactation. What we've discovered in the last 30 to 40 years is that oxytocin affects every tissue in the body, has consequences for almost every function of the body, perhaps all of them, and helps connect us to others. To your point, connection is what makes humans strong. Unfortunately, it can also be our downfall, but it's a very powerful thing to be able to cooperate. I think one of your more interesting research studies was on the prairie voles, which I think illustrated a lot of different points. Could you briefly describe that prairie vole experiment to us? Well, I started working with the prairie voles, brought them into the laboratory in the 1970s. I was at the University of Illinois at that time. Um, those animals turned out to be kind of a gold mine of sociality. 
because we discovered and my collaborator Lowell Getz, who was an ecologist, showed that in nature they lived in pairs until one member of the pair died. They formed little communal families. The babies sometimes stayed at home and helped take care of their younger siblings. So it was quite mysterious. How could a rodent about the size of a mouse form a lifelong pair bond? And they do have small brains, as you pointed out. They're not, they're not humans. Um, and they're not primates. They're just little field mice. So by sort of following my nose in this case, because I was already working on reproductive biology at that time, I began to look for possible causes of this lifelong pair bond. And to speed forward to about the 90s, we were able to show that oxytocin already known to be involved in maternal behavior was also allowing adults to bond to each other. That was startling to some people, got a lot of press articles in New York Times, um, a lot of media coverage because up to that point, almost everyone, including me, thought that uh, monogamy and social behaviors around pair bonding were learned. And indeed they are learned, but they're learned in a physiological context. We have a preparedness, if you will, to form those relationships and prairie voles are very much like humans. And so many parallels that it became kind of overwhelmingly uh, obvious that something deep inside the animal was happening that was causing them to be capable of all these human-like behaviors. They, they avoid incest. They, they, fathers take care of the babies. That's not common in mammals. Um, the, they, the male and female share duties in a way that you see in birds, but you rarely see in mammals. All of that is not simply oxytocin. It's a combination of molecules that regulate the animal's behavior, but it brought the attention again to oxytocin and this more primitive molecule known as vasopressin. So oxytocin evolved recently, but it had precursors. It had ancestral forms that were similar to oxytocin, but most of them did not support this high sociality. They supported a more primitive version of social behavior, and they also supported aggression. In fact, the, the point you brought up earlier about human behavior a lot of that is probably vasopressin talking, if you will. It's wow. that older molecule. So vasopressin is a cousin of oxytocin, correct? I mean, is it just a couple molecules different between the two? Yes, they're very similar. And just to jump to a clear one, and this is not concrete at all in real life, but oxytocin is anti-inflammatory. 
Yes. And vasopressin is pro-inflammatory. And I also notice about 500 million years ago that most of the new molecules were inflammatory for survival. It seems that way. Certainly, there are lots of things in our environment, in our food sources, that are anti-inflammatory. And I'm not capable of saying one's more powerful than the other. Um, it's a very important question, but I don't know if it's answerable. Um, but yes, so we were engaging in a kind of sociality that allowed us to get the benefits of others, even bacteria get the benefits of others, but it didn't create this complex social behavior that's associated with forming lifelong pair bonds. Which is extraordinary. And this is, some, this is saying something differently than I've said in the past in that you can intellectually want to do something, but your behavioral patterns always win. In other words, the unconscious brain wins or the conscious part of your body. And I don't like the term mind-body anymore because it's just a unit. I, I think the, even the term mind-body implies that there's a separation. So I really am trying to get rid of that term mind-body completely. And the nervous system actually evolved late, right? I mean, you had bacteria communicating with each other then they had the slime and they started developing nerves but the you know neocortex or or our thinking brain you know in the in the history of life is actually a relatively recent phenomenon yeah someplace between the reptilian ancestors and the first mammals we probably started to get a more and more elaborate cortex I don't think anyone knows exactly when that happened, but um, it, it created the capacity for remembering others over time, right. for missing others, for loneliness, as you said. It's possible that reptiles don't experience loneliness. Right. So, Let's just stop just for a second and can we, um, let's just briefly describe the polyvagal theory that your husband put together. And of course, those of us in the round table sort of wonder what your breakfast conversations are like every day. You have two major world-class scientists at the table and um, we would love to hear, in fact, you, just, you could just record your conversations and probably teach the world a lot. Well, they change every day because in my opinion, Steve does most of the talking and he's full of highly creative explanations for human behavior. Right. Um, but the bottom line, what's the polyvagal theory? As you know, David, it can be interpreted two ways. It can be interpreted in the context of two branches of the vagus nerve specifically the parasympathetic nervous system, one of which is modern and one of which is old, or you can go to the behavioral level, which for most of us is easier, and you can talk about a sense of safety, perception of positive experiences, anticipation of positive experiences. So things don't have to be right there at the moment. So safety versus threat. So I like to say, I don't know if Steve would use these words, but I think that threat and dealing with threat brings us to a more primitive part of our nervous system, 
And to the extent that we feel safe, we can draw on that big cortex. We're not down in the old brainstem areas that our reptilian ancestors had. We've got those still, but we've added something on, something wonderful that allows us to get out of threat into a sense of safety and use others for co-regulation and to help us uh, just deal with the stress of life. Right. Well, I find fascinating with this conversation is that we've learned that <clears throat> the um, this ventral vagus nerve is connected to facial muscles, smiling, right. tone of voice, all these things are connected to this vagus nerve. So allows it. So when you see another living creature, of course, the automatic instinct is survival and defense. So that's the sympathetic nervous system fires things up, including the immune system, including increasing your metabolism, which is fuel production or fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. So you have high fuel, fuel consumption, you have a hyper alert state, and it's that ventral vagus nerve that modulates your facial expressions and the parasympathetic nervous system through the vagus nerve, and I did not realize this at all in medical school, is powerfully anti-inflammatory. Yes. And so as you go into, so we also know that anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, probably psychosis are all inflammatory disorders. So what happens, we have a physiological, re, physiological response to a threat and what's missing right now, and I think that's one thing, or at least I'm determined to change, is to get anxiety out of the psychiatric diagnosis coding system because it describes the sensation of an activated nervous system. So what happens, you have all these psychological descriptions of behavior to avoid that sensation because it is a survival sensation, but anxiety, what we call anxiety is a physiological term, not a psychological problem. It's a, it's a response to a threat, not the cause. Mm -hmm. So that's the neurological part of it where your brain's taking an eccentric input and reacting. But then in the middle of this thing is oxytocin. And so I, I, I wanna go back to the prairie voles just for a second is that they don't have consciousness. They don't have, I mean, they have consciousness, but they don't have human consciousness and they don't have language yet they bond for life. Yes. So with humans, you know, intellectually there's all sorts of, all sorts of obstacles that come in the place of human relationships. So what you just answered a question for me is that there's so much challenges in relationships in general. Why do we even keep trying? So it sounds like oxytocin is the driving force. Yes, or the attempt to bring that mechanism that includes oxytocin and the parasympathetic nervous system into to have access to that. Because what really may be driving us are the more primitive states, um, the fears, the, if you will, anxiety, that we're trying to overcome. So people will be more likely to be social when they're frightened, at least in certain kinds of fear, not all. There's a complexity here, of course, uh, but in sort of mobilized uh, anxiety, people who are psychologically healthy will seek others. People who are shut down, and this is part of Steve's theory, 
may avoid others, they may go into a kind of withdrawal state. And that's a more primitive way of doing business. It's also more dangerous. Dangerous because we're social mammals and we need others. Dangerous because we're more vulnerable to predation and so forth. So this is something I'm going to ask you because <clears throat> we have a deep need for human connection. And of course, we started to cooperate. We went from the bottom of the food chain to the top of the food chain. Unfortunately, this evolution occurred in tribes because humans were also predators to each other. So the bonds occurred with people who were familiar. So we have a really big problem right now in the world with racism, et cetera. But it's evolutionary. That's the way it works. In other words, it was is people of like minds, like skin colors, like whatever you want to call it, that we actually evolved by forming tribes. Is that a fair statement? Well, you can say that because you're human and we experience it. I'm not an expert in this field at all. Um, but I do think we can extend our tribes quite easily. Right. No, we have the capacity to do it. We have but the capacity. And that tribe might be marked more simply by someone that made us feel safe. So we wouldn't care what their skin color or race or anything is if we were allowed, and there are a lot of people trying to prevent this right now, if we were allowed to feel safe with others. Right, so I agree. You have to have cues of safety in order to feel safe enough to actually reach out to other people that are not your tribe. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, or I think social bonds are a little bit more powerful than we realize. So we can form social bonds with people, possibly people we don't even like. Right. Because our body draws us into this old physiology. Um, there is quite a lot of social psychology being done now around oxytocin. When I started my own work in the 19, late 1970s, that was certainly not the case. People thought social psychology was in the head. Now we recognize that our social behavior at all levels is in the body, as you said, and the body doesn't distinguish between the brain and the rest of it. Well, again, I want to go back to the prairie bowls again. I mean, that's pretty profound that you have a chemical that just flat out creates social bonding. That's profound. Well, it sets, a, sets it up, it sets the system up so that a bond can form. But there has to be someone or something there for it to happen. I usually say, although I can't prove it, that the prototype is the mother-infant interaction. That humans are so dependent on their mothers when they're first born or a maternal caretaker that that system, if it hadn't worked, we would not be able to be here. And also because humans have such a big brain and such a big head, in order to sort of maximize our outcomes, we were born in a very otherwise pretty immature state, unable to take care of ourselves. We had to have a caretaker, usually the mother. 
And the mother had to be willing to participate in this bidirectional relationship. She had to get something out of it. Oxytocin is almost certainly part of that early social bond. You can do it other ways. So there are early studies that suggested you could achieve maternal behavior without much oxytocin, but you had to revert to the more primitive molecule, probably vasopressin, and likely that kind of maternal behavior based on animal work was just not of the high quality, very kind of instinctive behavior that we associate with a, a mother who, who's never, almost never trained to be a mother. Right. She's just right. a baby's mm -hmm. there. Somehow or the other, she gets her hands on it. Actually, I have a theory about that. She gets, mothers often become cold. They have a chill right at birth, possibly from the loss of the body mass of the baby, their temperature may drop slightly. Okay. And they reach down to get that thing, which is quite hot. It's like 104 degrees instead of the mother's temperature. So it's like picking up a warming device. And, then, and from there on, the oxytocin kicks in. It, it was helping get the baby out. Now it's there. It kicks in and you have an, what people have called an instinct. It's not really without cause. It's just it has a chain of physiological processes that led to it. So you're saying oxytocin prevent, presents the opportunity to bond. Obviously, the bonding may not take place. But if without the oxytocin, that opportunity probably wouldn't even be there. Is that a fair statement? Pretty good. Yeah. Um, Non-mammals, other than birds, don't form bonds with their offspring. Their offspring are usually coming out of eggs. Right. Now, birds are different because they have to incubate their eggs. So they actually right. do bond to what comes out of the egg. Reptiles, as far as we know, do not have social bonds. Neither do amphibia and neither do most fish. There may be some exceptions on the fish, it's interesting. But we, we pride ourselves on our social behavior because it is really what makes us human. Right. Well, Sue, thank you very much. The second part of this podcast, which will air next week, we're, we're gonna discuss really the implications for um, loneliness, chronic pain, changes in the body's chemistry. There's, there's tremendous social implications on social bonding on inflammation and pain direct, very directly. And that's what we, we have learned a tremendous amount. So Sue, thank you very much. I again, learned a few things again today, which is great. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sue Carter, for being on the show today and discussing the evolution of oxytocin and the important role it plays in social bonding. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.